So, um, welcome again to Gracemont, where we uh, have Christians with questions, and we like to talk about things that sometimes aren't always conducive to talk about in church services or Sunday school. And so just to remind everybody who uh, may be listening for the first time or just curious about what we're about, we're trying to create a, a space where people who don't exactly fit into uh, a box or maybe even the norm might be the, the word to use in a, in a, a religious denomination, um, we try to create a space where people can come and talk about things that uh, they have questions about. Maybe they don't agree with their church exactly, or or maybe they just have questions about God or or the Bible. And so this is, we kind of wanted to create a space where people can come and feel free just to talk about what they'd like to talk about and just things that they find interesting and, and, and are curious about. So um, I'm at my job uh, a few days ago and I'm uh, getting a cup of coffee and I'm talking to a couple of people there and uh, Jeff walks in who I didn't really know very well um, until I know him better now but uh, we said hello he mentioned something about um, when he went to grad school and I said okay uh, you know tell me a little bit about that so it just so happened that he uh, has two master's degrees and worked on his PhD all within uh, the uh, oh, uh, a religious career with with that mindset and but he mentioned that uh, you know he had some different opinions and some different ideals and I just said hey you've got to let me tell you about something that me and a buddy are doing and it would just be I think fun to have you come on and just kind of talk about your experiences and uh, some of your ideas and so and so he, he agreed and so here we are and so I'm going to tell you just a little bit about uh, uh, his name's Jeff McElroy and he is a former United Methodist pastor he holds two masters from the Chandler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta a master's of divinity and a Master's of Theology. He was a doctoral candidate in Ancient Near Eastern Languages and Cultures at the University of Texas, Austin, focusing on the Hebrew Bible and ancient understandings of gender and sexuality. In addition, he did secondary research into apocalyptic literature and the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, Jeff, thank you so much for being with us. And now that everybody kind of knows a little bit about you, um, I just was going to throw out a question to you. So, sure, and, uh, thanks for having me. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it'll be fun, and and hopefully we'll learn some stuff about each other, and maybe maybe learn some stuff about about uh, about our faiths and and religion and the Bible. So, so you're no longer a member of the clergy. So right. what? prompted you leaving and do you can still consider yourself a christian uh let's start with that second half there uh yes i do um i still consider myself a person of faith a follower of jesus uh, but my relationship to the church is very different than it was say a decade ago um 
part of that is just so around the time I was looking to go finish my ordination and get my full orders, uh, my dad got incredibly sick and passed. Um, I just had, I was in the middle of my doctoral studies, uh, just a lot of things in my personal life. And I just realized I wasn't going to be able to finish all the paperwork and the interviews. And um, so I went ahead and deferred that. And as I reflected on it, I don't, I like to say I didn't have a crisis of, crisis of faith, but more so a crisis of ecclesiology. So, and by what that, I mean, my understanding of the nature of the church, what the church should be, in my view, is very different from Western professional ministry. Um, I just, part of me sees, the more I read the Bible and the more I studied it, both personally and as an academic, I looked at what the church kind of did day to day and kind of went, so we're skewed a little bit off center. Um, okay. Uh, and on top of the personal stuff, I decided, you know what? I'm just, I, I need to go a new direction. Um, so like I said, it's not so much I'm not a person of faith anymore. And not that I think the church can't be very good for the world, um, especially on the local level. The lo what the work the local congregations do, particularly for their communities, for individuals who walk through their doors, um, uh, can still be a very positive force in the world. But from a professional and personal standpoint, uh, where I was at the time, I decided to, you know, shift gears, try to focus on my doctoral work, which ultimately because of all everything else going on in my personal life, I had to also eventually put aside, but, um, I kind of, just reevaluated where I was and who I was and what the church wanted me to be and said, you know, maybe this isn't the greatest fit on either side. Uh, I jokingly tell friends, uh, I, I was too liberal even for the Methodists. Uh, you were what? What? Say that again. Too liberal, too liberal even for the Methodists. Okay. You know, so, um, so you know, I, don't... A lot. I have a, sure, go ahead. Yeah. I don't know how much you know about Apostle John Luke here, uh, but I, I may kind of step in and have, because it sounds like you and he are have similar kind of ideas that you see value in the church. And uh, so, John Luke, can you kind of talk about where, where you are? And, and Because it sounds like there's some similarities there between what you're thinking and, and kind of where he where he is. I just I just think that well, I've mentioned in previous podcasts that the church focuses on all these things you have to believe. Things like miracles and the virgin birth and what have you. That all of which are really to many people I think distractions uh, asking them to believe things that are unreasonable when really all you have to believe to be a Christian, and my way of thinking is that Jesus was sent here to save us from our sins, period. And all the other stuff is fluff. Some of it's been added by people and different sects and so forth. But mm -hmm. that's that's my belief. And I think if 
we allow people only believe in that one little thing that gets a lot more people able to believe than where we're sitting now. Yeah, I um, read a book years ago by a New Testament scholar, Luke Timothy uh, uh, Johnson, called The Creed. He's Catholic uh, by tradition. And he was talking about the Nicene Creed, but I think his principles around the Creed, I think, could apply to something like the Apostles' Creed uh, as well, which is a statement of faith, right? It's, I believe in Jesus and in, in, uh, God, the, you know, uh, believe in God, believe in Jesus, you know, that he lived, he died, he was resurrected. Uh, I believe in the Holy Spirit, believe in, you know, the mission of the church and the Holy Spirit and, you know, these, you know, a statement of beliefs, right? That go back. The Apostles' Creed go back to second century texts. We find them in, um, uh, in some second century uh, uh, texts from the church. Uh, the Nicene Creed, of course, is adopted by the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century um, as uh, the formal creed um, uh, with a very political slant uh, within the church uh, against uh, uh, Arian Christianity. Um, so there's some lines that put in there intentionally to clarified, no, this is really what, you know, against this idea, this is, you know, what we're saying is right. Um, when you say Arian but, Christianity, uh, are you talking about the ones who did not believe that Jesus was God and the, and the Trinity yes. being yes. three people in one? They thought that yes, the, uh, Jesus yeah. was a different person from God? Yes. Okay. The, uh, yeah. The, what we, in church history, it's called the Arian controversy after the kind of the lead theologian in that movement, Arius, um, being near Christmas, uh, you know, one of, you know, uh, kind of funny story. Um, and a lot of, uh, preacher friends will, you know, throw around this to each other uh, around Christmas time, at least within my circle, friend, you know, circle of, um, preacher friends. But, uh, St. Nicholas punched Arius on the floor of the council of Nicaea. Uh, as the St. Nicholas of which, from which the tradition of Santa Claus came from. Um, so, um, so, so it's like, so, Merry Christmas. Remember the Puntinarian today. If he, <laughs> if he actually was there, which I understand there's controversy that he may have been maybe, added yeah. later. Again, that's much later than the research I did. Uh, yeah. You know, so, but uh, I focus on much, you know, you get much past, you know, Jesus, the formation of the New Testament, that's Gisbert here in terms of my detail, you know, my knowledge of the detailed um, scholarly, scholarly debate. So, but uh, yeah, no, who knows what is legend and what's not sometimes. So, so I heard something about that just recently. I, I can't I remember if I read it. I think I read it and it was, they said that the, the Nicene council that a lot of people had the idea that it was these, you know, uh, esteemed people coming in and love and and kindness and 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 debating this but they said probably a closer uh story of reality was there was a lot of infighting there was a lot of bad feelings a lot of disagreement and it was kind of i to what i read that like one group sort of wrestled away the the direction of the council and then just kind of came up with this idea that okay here's Here's what's truth, and here's what uh, if you don't believe this, you're a heretic, and so that it 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 was a little messy, you know. I, oh, I, I, yeah, I absolutely. So I I know sometimes I think that this was all real clean and tidy and neat, but apparently it was a 
kind of uh okay hey so just to uh uh so so uh john luke and i are kind of grown up mostly in southern baptist i went to pentecostal for mm -hmm. a little bit uh back to southern baptist so what what is i was it, a methodist what is the difference between oh you were methodist yep oh so and I'm then married so jeff I got you. So you guys had then some similar, because I don't really know the difference between Southern Baptist and Methodist. Can you guys like enlighten me a little bit? Is there a big difference or? Level of guilt. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Level of guilt uh, induction, I think. Yeah, no. Um, at least on the Methodist side, um, ha uh, heavy emphasis on free will. Heavy emphasis on free no, will. No eternal security? Uh, no. Actually, there is a firm belief that you, due to free will, you actually can lose your salvation. Okay. Gotcha. You know, um, uh, what uh, in old Methodist terms is called black, backsliding. Um, oh, okay. You know, but uh, so there's the idea. Wesley, uh, John Wesley, who's an Anglican priest um, in the 18th century, um, he kind of had a revivalist movement within the Anglican church that would eventually split off. Um, but his big thing was emphasizing multiple phases of God's grace in God's, you know, followers. Um, that the idea of what we call, what methods call preventative, justifying and sanctifying grace. And all that really, it's all the same grace, but it's almost like stages where okay. pre uh, preventive grace is the idea that even before you come to salvation or are saved, to use those terms, um, not terms I generally like to use in my own theology, but they're, you know, but I either get the point across for the sake of this purpose. But um, before you are quote unquote saved, God's graces are working in your life. God, is, you know, God blesses everyone. You know, Jesus says in the Gospels, or the Gospels say Jesus says. You know, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, and the sun rises on the just and the unjust. So, you know, the idea that God's grace is already working in the life of, you know, people, even before they come to know God, you know, know Jesus. Um, then there's the moment of justification where you come to faith. And then going forward, you are then sanctified. You are made more and more holy day by day by following the means of grace, which okay. are communion, reading your Bible, worship, commuting with your fellow believers, um, helping the poor. Um, uh, in Methodist societies in England did, did very like feed poor, educate children, uh, did a lot of things in their communities. Um, uh, so this idea that as you grow, in, you're growing to perfection. Okay. So the part um, where you go Wesley, to college and chase wild women and drink a whole lot, that's the backsliding part? Yes. No, well, I didn't do that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, after, all right. You, know, you have your middle school baptism, then you, you know, in your youth group all, all through senior, you know, through you know, high school, then you backslide in college, and then, you know, when you have kids, you go back to church, you know. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, I got dragged so... back to church. <laughs> yeah, he, he married a good woman. I did. She's Kinda. a hell of a woman. Yeah, he did. He did marry a good woman. Yeah. So, but real quick, just to circle back um, okay. on the so the idea of what does well, what is a Christian, right? You, um, John John Luke talked about 
the idea that you have to have these beliefs, right? Um, Luke, again, Luke Timothy Johnson in his book talks about, the, uses the creed as basically he says, this is a fence, right? That, and if you can find a place where you feel that you fit within the fence, then, you know, um, so can you agree to these statements in some way of understanding? Not necessarily that you believe the same as how you many know, statements are or, there? Uh, you know, depends on the creed. Yeah. But you, know, you just read the creed, you know, they're about 10, 10 to 15 lines. Okay. And, so, you know, and it's really just, you know, I believe in God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. You know, this is yeah. the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and shall come back to judge the quick and the dead, uh, or living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So, if you can understand those statements in some way, and affirm affirm them, you know, I, now I may be even looser on this than he is, but, yeah. you know, so that, that's in his book he argued, yes. Go that's ahead. what you have to believe in to become a Methodist? No. Oh. He's, he's just saying, if you're a Christian, here's kind of the fence, oh, right? Oh, gotcha. You know, if you can find yourself in the field somewhere. Yeah. Then, you know, you're you're within the fence, right? You know, it's kind of his metaphor. It's not a perfect metaphor by any stretch. Um, and I also tend to believe God's grace is much larger than our puny conceptions of it. <laughs> um, so, you know, I might be not as stringent as he is at times in his, but I still so, think it's an interesting analogy. So now that I know more about John Luke and his background, so what do you, John Luke, do you have, what, what was your experience as a Methodist? Did you, did you have a, a certain belief and do you agree with Jeff's idea about being a Christian? Well, at, at the time I sat on the back row, like in high school, I sat on the back row and didn't pay attention. Um, and, but I understand that those who were very serious about it did try to believe everything in that creed that he just listed. Whereas what I, the John Luke creed has about one of those things in it, which I've already mentioned. Yeah. And the, the, uh, Maybe two, <laughs> God the Father yeah. and and believing in Jesus, but I do not think you have to believe there's a literal Trinity that they're all mm -hmm. one people. So I could be like Arius, I guess, believing that yeah. that they're that mm -hmm. Jesus was human and was, but was sent by God. Did I answer so your question? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm trying to I'm trying to find the parallels between where Jeff is and where you are now. Now. Okay. I have two questions for Jeff, which kind of pertain to you both a little bit. One is I, I want to get to this. What do you think of the historical Jesus, you know, uh, and then, okay. So let me do this. Let me do this. John Luke, tell me about your opinion of who you think the historical Jesus was. Did he, did he actually exist? Uh, is it, uh, you know, did, did it build over time or 
And then Jeff, I want, I would like for you to kind of respond to that and, and give sure. me your idea on that. And, sure. and, and John Luke, I know you've done this before, but because Jeff hasn't heard this, maybe you could kind of, and then it'll help me remember to kind of clarify where, where you are. I'm still trying to figure that out. So. I, I think Jesus was a real man. I think uh, mm -hmm. he was sent by God to save us from our sins. I think the things he says in the Bible may or may not literally be the things he said, and they've been written down mm -hmm. by men. Um, mm -hmm. But they, uh, if you follow those teachings, they're great teachings. And if you just mm -hmm. go with the things that he said to shape your beliefs, it changes Versus if you go by everything in in the Bible and the New Testament, like, for instance, if you, Paul, who was a great organizer, I call him, he, he came in and added his system of order to the Christianity, which may or may not have been really what Jesus wanted. Because Jesus told us what he wanted us to know. And that's why I talk about the stuff written in red. Uh, and of course, those stories were passed down for, you know, fifty or hundred years before they were written down. Sometimes, but, but those stories, if they're even close to what he actually said, are great, great learning. Hey, bef before Thanks. I go to Jeff, John Luke, what is your opinion on eternal security? Do you, because the church you go to now, I think, believes that. Is that your opinion? Uh. I'm not a I'm not a Baptist at all, you know. I Oh you're I, not I'm hoping there is a heaven. And I'm pretty sure oh, there's okay. not a hell. I mean that I so I can't really speak to whether or not I believe in eternal security and once saved, always saved, and all that stuff. Because right. it's okay, pretty Jeff, far what, outside of what I think is real. What what say that? Okay. Yeah. It's far Explain from what I think comment. is actual reality. Heaven and hell and all that? The the Baptist uh, belief of the once saved, always saved okay. business. All right. Okay, Jeff. So, the story of Jesus. So, um, yeah. I think, again, I agree. He was a, he was a guy. Um. The earliest stories to probably be codified before they were written down in the Gospels via oral tradition and maybe even some written tradition we don't have anymore was probably the Passion story. Um, the parallels between the four Gospels are too strong um, to... Hey, can you back up a Sure. The Passion story. Uh, the last week of his life. Oh, Okay, can you repeat that? So the last week of Jesus' life, the it is probably the traditions that solidified the earliest, okay. and were communicated on, okay. communicated down. Um, All right. The the parallels. There are places in the Gospels where there's some very there's some stark differences, either for theological or. Um, philosophical or intention or reasons of trying to demonstrate uh, aspect of who they think Jesus is versus you know somebody else's view 
Um, but the passion story, the last week of his life, what we would call Holy Week, from the moment he comes into Jerusalem and we start getting people saying he's alive on, on Easter Sunday, those traditions tend to be fairly static. What does uh, that there's mean? There's some minor differences. They, they, they don't change between Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. People all tell the same story. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, those, that's probably the old, oldest tradition that really kind of solidifies. Some of the parables probably are also pretty old. Um, I suspect the I am statements in John probably have a long tradition. The longer, the ju- but just like that first sentence, uh, but in John, there's the seven I am speeches. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the bread of life. You know, I am, you know, uh, the, there's seven of those and they're big, long speeches. One thing right. that in the other three gospels, Jesus doesn't do. He usually just speaks in parables or, you know, a few sayings or he quotes scripture. He doesn't give big, long speeches. I suspect that the older parts of those stories are the, the statement at the beginning, like I am the bread of life. And then there's a tradition of commentary by the community that preserve those traditions on what that statement means. And it becomes, when they write it down in the gospel form, it becomes a speech. You know, but I'm the way bread of life. And everything after that, till the speech ends, is, and this is what we think this means. This, you know, this is the significance of that statement. Um, right. That's the one gospel I think you might be able to tra- trace back to his namesake. Maybe. And that's John? John. You know, okay. the Apostle John. But yeah. because there, there's the, in the gospel, it keeps talking about the apostle that Jesus loved. Yeah. So the community, and it's the, and it seems like that's the community's view of who founded them, or is their, you know, spiritual ancestor, as it were. And they place high emphasis and place them strictly against Peter. Right? And so there's an apostle, maybe John, uh, that they trace their tradition back to. Whether that's historically accurate or not, that's unprovable. So but I think if, it would... if I had to lay money, maybe. Yeah. So I think if if I could do this, I would think John Luke and you both would agree that the idea of the the Bible is the inerrant every jot and tittle is accurate is probably not what no. you subscribe to as being no and that's not even t- and that's even just dealing with the gospel which from a historical standpoint are some of the best attested books we have historically period in terms of gap between when it was probably written and the copies we have okay right because church you know people kept the copies around so we have them the but and versus say something like you know, uh, Josephus, right? The gap right. between when Josephus would have been writing and the copies we have of Josephus, yeah, I don't know. I'm not a classic scholar. But my I believe and I suspect the gap between that is very bit different than, say, the 100 to 150 years between, you know, the Gospels and the first fragments of the Gospels that, to, that we're getting. Right. Right. So from a historical standpoint, those are some of the best attested books in terms of historical preservation that we have, um, including even the Old Testament with the Hebrew Bible, where we find 
an exact copy of Isaiah, exactly as it is in the thousand-year-later Masoretic text. So, again, the idea that Jesus lived, he was a real person from Nazareth, and did ministry in and around Galilee, went to Jerusalem, was arrested by the council, uh, whose names we know from Roman sources, that they matched the names, you know, Ananias and Caiaphas. We have their names in Roman sources, I believe. So they were real people as well. He was crucified by Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of Judea at that time. Um, and then in three, you know, and then three days later, his followers were claiming he was alive. Um, okay. So you know, I did, or within, or within, you know, or within a few, a few weeks, you know. So followers. I did, did I miss the, he, he was resurrected in that? That is not a historically provable fact. Okay. So, but do I believe he was resurrected? Yeah. Yes. But that's a statement of faith. Oh, okay. I have, that's a statement of faith and what resurrection means. I don't know. What does that okay. look like? You know, um, right. You know, uh, th those are faith statements, not historical statements. Hey, and John I make Luke, a very clear distinction between those two. Hey, John Luke, you, yeah. what is your, do you believe he rose from the dead? Now, you, you believe that he was crucified by Pilate or by the Romans. But do you, is it, is it your belief that he rose from the dead? I think or do you have it? That's that's on my list of things that it doesn't matter whether you believe that or not. You can believe that. So did he magically in this puff of smoke rise up into heaven, or did he just die and his his uh, spirit went to heaven like everyone else? That, that doesn't really matter. It's just it's part of the story. It's part of the it's part of the story that I think that they told back there to influence people to become Christians. Where it's uh, they made you know the magical stuff is what. Uh, made so many ancient people want to be part of Christianity, whereas in reality, does that really matter? I mean, it does when you to any preacher you talk to, but if you think about it logically, do you care that it happened that way? Does does it have to happen that way? I don't. So you're kind of open to the idea of resurrection meaning something different than what is taught necessarily that he that he came back to life he was in his physical body that he had the you know the nail scars in his hand and the and the the piercing in his side that it could be something different than a physical resurrection so that to me i've always compared that to well at least since the late 70s or early 80s i've compared it to uh to Elvis. They're like hundreds of people saw Elvis alive after he died. And it's same same with Jesus. Now that that sounds heretical, but uh people will tell stories like that and uh that may have been the same thing with Jesus. I don't know. Again, I don't care. That's not necessarily that's not necessary for me to believe that Jesus came to save us from our sins. So. And one 
Okay. One track people have taken historically in terms of history of interpretation of the resurrection is the idea that, yeah, no, there's not a Jesus came back to life, but there is some kind of spiritual experience of his presence by the community, right? So, um, you know, and they claim, you know, that they see him, you know, maybe a mass hallucination, some people would say, but maybe it's just some kind of spiritual experience that they have that convinces them that they experience him alive. Um, or, you know, because the idea of magic, of these things, the miracles and stuff, is not uncommon outside of Christianity in that world. Hearing those stories to an ancient Roman or Greek would have been not unusual, um, especially when you're talking about a religious prophet of some sort. So to them, the you know claiming Jesus healed people, oh okay yeah he's a healer. A lot of other prophets are healers, you know. So to you know so from a cultural standpoint, at the time, that's not strange. Right, like the the virgin birth that you know the all the mm-hmm. you know Hercules was. Mm-hmm. Zeus's kid, you know, so yeah. that was common in yeah. Greek religion. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I remember you were saying something about you were teaching Jeff in an academic. So yeah, it was part of my work at University of Texas. I uh, TA classes. Um, uh, the one I TA the most often was a general introduction course for the um, for just incoming freshmen. Um, it was basically an introduction to how to do college for incoming freshmen and the professors basically could teach whatever course they wanted to. And so one of my professors, uh, John Hunegaard would teach uh, writing as the technology. So how did writing develop? Where did it come from? How did it develop? Uh, how do we get the alphabet? Um, you know, and then taught, we did some things on neuroscience and writing, uh, uh, did some things on, yeah, it was so it was a very interesting course. Um, but my first year there, um, I TA'd for the religious studies department in their New Testament courses, intro to New Testament and then uh, early Christianity. Um, and then I also TA'd um, uh, often gen- the gender in the Bible class since I was one of the students working on gender. So when uh, Joanne Hackett, one of another one of our professors, would teach that course um, as an upper-level elective, like history elective or literature elective. Um, I think it was listed as a religious elective, you know, as a religion course and was elective. So a lot of religious studies students would take it, but other people would take it just as a general elective. And um, uh, I'd often TA it because I was doing gender and sexuality in my research and my dissertation work. Tell us about that. That sounds sexy. (laughs) (laughs) So I was working on... Uh, focus, uh, ma- uh, ideas and constructions of masculinity in the ancient world. Um, masculinity studies in within the field of gender studies and fitness studies is kind of a new area. Um, it's kind of been around since the 80s. And in academia, since the 80s, is new. Uh, <laughs> um, but in within the realms of the Bible and ancient Near, and ancient Near Eastern studies, it hadn't really been covered. There's one scholar up in Phil, around Philadelphia that was doing some work in the time. And there was one person over in, I think, the Netherlands who was doing some work in that area um, with the ancient world uh, outside of the Greco-Roman, outside of 
you know, Greco-Roman and classics. Uh, they, there's been some of that going on for a bit there. But within the realm of Hebrew Bible, masculinity hadn't been really focused on. Um, so I was, my dissertation topic was looking at how David and his masculinity was constructed kind of various, in various different ways within the David stories. Um, say, you know, you've got the warrior David versus the shepherd David. And how did the ancient Near East understand those metaphors? Um, how did the Bible, uh, the biblical texts, you know, either affirm or undermine or, you know, subvert, maybe be, might be the better term, uh, ancient Near Eastern acceptations of what it is to be king? You know, uh, and once masculinity was very much tied to their king, kingly authority. So how did the Bible either reaffirm those stereotypes or in other ways, did, how did they subvert them? So, um, you know, I did, I wrote a paper on Song of Songs for a class uh, focusing on, um, there's one poem where it, um, well, throughout the text where it, you know, talks about the masculinity of the male lover and how uh, it's, you know, it, it constructs, but also it places, I was kind of responding to feminist critique that viewed Song of Songs as this almost egalitarian relationship between, an equal relationship between man and woman, but underpinning all those masculine imagery is the ancient or Eastern war tropes that are, that are, that are used to talk about rape and pillaging. And so, like, so kind of saying it's not as egalitarian as these earlier feminist scholars wanted to say it was. Hey, so, so speaking of that, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I have a, a question since you have studied so much mm -hmm. that I've heard by more than one yeah. source that the women were very much involved in the church at first, but by the time of the Council of Nicaea, none of them were invited. Do you, do you know much about that? Yeah, so within, say, the first century, and you see this in Paul, in the letters of Paul that are undisputed. They're, you know, out of the letters of Paul, seven are undisputed to be actually Paul's. Paul, um, scholars debate about the others, but um, and actually in Romans, um, there is a apostle with a female name that in later manuscripts got changed to a male name. Really? Huh. And her, she has the title apostle. Okay. Right. Um, so this is not in, an insignificant position, right? She is an, an apostle. Uh, I think it is Julia. Um, I have, let me, it's in Romans. I can look it up where I talk, but, um, but yeah, no, uh, absolutely. You see this definitely in Paul's letters that, uh, women, uh, uh, definitely had a very high role. Uh, the women in me, me, Jesus ministry uh, had roles in Jesus's ministry. Right. Um, uh, you know, they're the they are the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. You know, which is, and if you you want your story to be credible, you don't have women tell it. Okay. You know, so you know, you know, so um, you know, again, that's not proof or disproof. That is just reality of the cult culturally. It's a strange, if you're going to fabricate out of nothing, you wouldn't think to put the words and the voices of women within that culture. Um, but yeah, no, women uh, gave you know, money. Uh, one of the heads of one of the house churches in Corinth was, a fe was female. Uh, you have the apostle 
um, in Romans. Um, uh, so in the uh, Nicene Council, were there women? Or was it just, or do uh, we know? I, I, pro I don't know. I suspect no. Okay. I mean, I, I don't, again, that's a few centuries beyond where, you know, I, I covered Nicaea in my, uh, you know, history of Christianity class and during my master's, but, I, we, I, but we were focusing on, you know, the theological debates versus, you know, from our perspective rather than focusing on, you know, um, those issues. So I do not, I cannot speak to that, unfortunately. I saw paintings um, and the paintings I saw, it was only men. So there you go. I, mean, I would suspect There's by that fruit. point in the church, yeah, I would suspect by that point in the church, yes. But because even by the second century, you start to see um, pushback. So John um, Luke, you think that, you think that during the time of Christ's ministry and Paul's ministry, that women were much more appreciated and, and inter interwoven into the, the Christian movement. And then I believe from your comment that you think that up until the Nicene Council, that women got kind of pushed to the back. Is that your understanding? That's what I think probably happened. I wouldn't err, obviously. I think uh, right. Jesus I appreciated the... See if you take women out of the out of the mix, you you lose half your talent. Well, and, and and would and you Jesus? I, you, I think you know, Jesus and Paul both recognized that, but those that came after them, perhaps not. Hey, you know, we so, went to that I, torture I, museum I, in in uh, yeah. Siena and saw <laughs> all the ways they tortured women who tried to speak out and and be part and, of the leadership. And so, so when was that? Okay, sorry, Jeff, we've gotten a, So when a lot of that torture was done, when? That was what, about 800 years ago or? I don't know, Middle Ages sometime, maybe even up into the Renaissance. I don't know. It was... so, so Jeff, uh, John Luke and I, we were in Italy together and we happened upon this torture museum. It was, and he wanted to go in and I was like, I don't know. But we went in. Oh, heck, you wanted to go in. <laughs> I wanted to. I was curious. I was curious, but I was like, I don't know. But we went in, and I mean, it was three stories of just unimaginable ways to torture people. And apparently this was done. Now, John Luke, I think you commented one time, you felt like this was a lot about religious uh, uh, conformity was what that was done in, or, or did I miss understand your comment that it, it seemed like from what was written by these okay. different torture devices was they were used on women who didn't know their places and okay. on heretics like you and me well now one thing i i feel relatively confident about and i think jeff would maybe agree agree is that there was a time when the bible went through it was being uh, translated into other languages, that that was frowned upon uh, uh, strongly by the church, and many times they were burned at the stake. And in fact, I, as far as I remember, there was one uh, gentleman who was, uh, uh, he, he translated the Bible into, I, I'm not going to say English because it's probably wrong, but then they used the Bibles that he printed as kindling 
for his uh, for his torture as they burnt him at the stake. And uh, so I do know that that some of that stuff was uh, I feel I feel confident about that was done in the name of religion. Um, but uh, anyway, I got us off track there a little bit. But um, so, OK, so back to Jeff and we have what about eight or ten more minutes there, John Luke, uh, Master Whatever. of Ceremonies. OK, uh, so I'm a little curious about the masculinity thing. In the Old Testament, some of our greatest uh, historical religious leaders had 15, 20, 30 wives. Mm -hmm. Is that, do you have any opinion on that? Or I've kind of been curious as to, to in the New Testament, there's like, it's, there's only one wife. That's, do you have any thoughts on that or? So the store, I mean, that's, Going back to the Old Testament, culturally, multiple wives happened. It's not you're if you have multiple wives, you're rich. Yeah, yeah. You know, your everyday farmer doesn't have three wives, right? You know, this is a sign of prestige, of status, of wealth. So this is not common practice, right? right. It's allowed, but it's not everybody. You know, every man going out and getting five wives or something, right? You know, so it's a little overstated. That being said, when people say the Bible intends one man, one woman, eh, that's a problematic statement for a lot of reasons. Okay. And one of which is the Bible fully accepts and allows or just at least acknowledges the reality culturally that this happened and never really condemns it. Right. You know, even if it doesn't explicitly say, would, yay, this is a good thing, it never actually says you shouldn't do this. Right. So um, you think God frowns on that now or maybe maybe not so much? I'm still, do you dare I'm still to trying, think trying what to figure God out my own thoughts. <laughs> yeah, that's one. one uh, that's between them and God. Uh, you know, two. And my mom always had a statement. Um Air on the side of grace. Okay. If I go before the throne and I have to answer for what I've done in my life. Yeah. If I get condemned because I was too loving, too accepting, you know, care for my neighbor too much, you know, then so be it. I'm willing to be condemned for that because that in my mind is the right thing to do. If it wasn't, well, I, I'm, this is where I'm planting my flag. Um, okay. if I'm wrong for that, then I'm wrong for that. Um, so I'm still trying to figure out where I feel in terms of, you know, polyamory. Um, you know, but it reality is, is like I have with, you know, uh, homosexuality as I have with transgender issues, I probably will just end up being a fully on the accepting side, you know, um, you know, I just, it's just a thing I haven't thought about it much. Um, cause I tend, I tend to focus more on the historical stuff. Like okay. what happened, you know, that's just how my brain is wired when I read it, read the Bible. I don't read it for, you know, a lot often just thinking, okay, how does this apply to my life now? So you, I read it for, you, huh? <laughs> okay. I was going to ask Are, something very, very controversial, but okay. I'll ask it and then you can choose it. So, okay. so what do you think God's opinion is about homosexuals? Now, you don't have to God answer that. Him. That he loves them. loves them. 
but they need to change their lifestyles or, or do you no. think he, are you, so you I'm think, totally yeah. mm -hmm. so homosexual marriage, you're kind of, as I jokingly said at the beginning, okay. I'm too liberal even for the Methodists. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, Cause the method, the Methodist church's official stance right now is unaffirming. Okay. Um, there are now the church is currently actively splitting over that issue. Yeah. Um, and the conservatives are voting their way, their own ways out. So who knows where that will be in 10 years. Right. But as of it stands right now, the United Methodist Church official stance is non-affirming. Okay. Uh, hey, so, so I have I have another question. Can I comment you. on that real quick? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So this, this circles me back around to one of my things I like to say, which is, so you look around and you see, like you look in the Hubble telescope and whatever that new telescope is called, and you see the, mm -hmm. the many galaxies mm -hmm. far beyond, and you think of a yeah. God that can create that and then you try to mm -hmm. think that you can even for an instant understand what a god like that thinks or believes mm -hmm. or condones then you're stupid yeah. so that's, so homosexuality it I, I, heck i don't know i've never i've never had to yeah. you know i've i've been fortunate enough to to grow up and be who i am and not have to worry about all that but my general stance. I'm, I'm not going to say God idea. thinks one way or another about it. Because so, I don't know. My, my general stance on the idea of sin is if you're not hurting people and if you're not doing things that hurts yourself, then whatever. Well, except you know. that's, that's um, one way to look at it, except everything you do hurts yourself or someone else. Every thing you do if you can imagine well, a way that I mean, it hurts someone else yeah explain there's that also, there's also there's also intent right you know like so the idea that you know again homosexuality if if you're a consenting relationship with another adult you know then you know what you know one doesn't affect anyone else well so why should they have a say in it oh two you know, again, you know, you're not hurting people, right? You know, so it's, you know, this is not being said very well, but I mean, you do have to at some point draw a line. Um, Miroslav Wolf, um, he's a theologian, um, Dutch, I want to say. Uh, he wrote a book back in the 90s, uh, around the time that South Africa was going through, um, you know, the end of apartheid and all that. Um, he talks about the apartheid tr trials, right, and the reconciliation, you know, under uh, that uh, Nelson Mandela kind of spearheaded. Um, he said, he, for heck on that, before they could reconcile, you had to name the harm that was done, right? You can't just sweep it under the rug. So, uh, and both in there, he talks about how then to forgive, you must also, you know, be clear that this is something that has hurt, right? So, you know, so he calls it, and the name of the book is uh, Exclusion and Embrace. That first you have to exclude, you have to name evil before you can then forgive and embrace and reconcile. Hey, John Luke. Um, now the clue, now the, the, pro, the let me finish uh, my yeah. okay, sure. real quick. And then I love sure. to, I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts on it. Um, difficulty of being human is drawing that line 
And where do you draw the line too far to the point that you're not excluding evil, you're excluding a person, right? You're not excluding their act, you're excluding who they are. You know, if someone murders, you need to acknowledge, you know, murder is evil. Doesn't mean you can't then forgive, right? And and I'm not saying, you know, they don't, don't get the consequences of their actions necessarily, but, you know, to be able to forgive, you can't just sweep the bad away right you can't just ignore it um, makes sense but it's com- but that's not an easy thing to do on either side it's hard work and it's tricky you know so i'm not gonna so i'm not gonna say i know where that lines are where those lines are by any stretch on any on very well on very few topics you know well, but this um this makes me think of something that what you're saying, like happened in apartheid, how you name what the evil mm-hmm. is first in Spain. Mm-hmm. When, uh, um, Franco died and mm-hmm. the prince took over print. I can't remember his name. It's Philip. Maybe I can't remember his name. Anyway, he takes over and he says, okay, we're just not going to talk about this and we're going to, we're going to all get along. And they didn't punish anybody that, threw people off the cliffs and what have you. They they just they did. They swept it under the rug totally. And they've they've functioned okay like that, but there's still a lot of hate from one side to the other. And See, Mandela explicitly went the other direction right. in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So you kind of, so you kinda of agree with him, John Luke. Is uh, about what? Uh, the importance of naming the uh, the the sin or the uh, ag- uh egregious before you can forgive right is that yeah, what you you're probably saying, need Jeff? to say yeah I, I messed up i did this this and this yeah and i won't do it anymore sorry my bad rather than Versus, saying okay we'll just get along now we'll just get along and okay hey i'm gonna go back to something you said john luke you said before you we handed it off to jeff you said something about um, you can't do anything that you don't hurt somebody. And I, 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 apparently I misunderstood that or does that ring a bell or am I way off on what you were saying that, that you can't do anything that you don't, maybe, maybe it has an influence on somebody. Is that, did I misunderstand that? <laughs> That's, this is a, this is a philosophical fine point. Like, yeah. let, I, I don't want to, sp- speak about homosexuality necessarily it's it's everyone like as a physician i understand that promiscuity spreads disease okay uh whether you're homosexual bisexual or uh heterosexual promiscuity is not a good thing and that's something that every group should remember and it will help not spread disease that's that's why when you say, or am I hurting anyone? Well, if it's a one-to-one relationship and both of you stay together long-term, or at least you're trying to find someone to stay together long-term, I think that's good. Uh, yeah. But you you must also be conscious that going out and having sex with everybody in the doorknob is going to spread disease, which as a physician troubles me. Okay. Yeah, so, and even if you and even if you say, 
do have an occasional one night stand. If you practice, you know, safe sex, if you are smart about it, you know, it's consent. If there's consent there, you know, you know, again, but like I said, promiscuity raises the chance of spreading disease of, you know, so, so absolutely. Yeah. And so you're not, see, I, I just, you're not doing that intentionally, but you're not being responsible, I guess is more, you yeah. know, if, if making yeah. sure you don't spread disease. Yes. And, and the only safe sex is the one you have with yourself in the bathroom with the lotion. That's <laughs> right. Hey, anything else so is going to risk have a spreading question, disease. Uh, I have a question for you, John Luke. So what do you think of sex outside of marriage? Do you think that's, I mean, it's is the same kind of deal, right? You know, don't be, don't be uh, irresponsible. You're looking to to do good stuff, but is that? What are your thoughts on that? Do, I'm not sure. That's a that's a really big subject. Are you talking about if you're okay. married and you're screwing around with somebody else, or if you're single? Oh yeah. I well, I didn't think of that. I was thinking. Yeah, what about that? Uh, I think yeah, if you're we'll married, it's that. not a good idea. It never works out. It will so ruin the relationship. Okay. And always, again, I go back to bringing diseases home to the family, which you don't want to do. Uh, sex okay. outside of marriage is, for two single consenting adults, that's fine. But again, you should be responsible. Okay. All right. Interesting. Interesting. So you don't, I mean, the, the, the church teaches fornication is don't do that. And I mean, in fact, even some in this of course, there's so much to discuss here, but you know, what was it? Was it Jesus said, if you look upon a woman with lust in your eyes, it's an, it's a fornication. Um, no, no, he said, he says adultery, adultery. Okay. And the thing is, is in the ancient world, adultery isn't committed against your wife. It's committed against the husband of the other woman. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Because. Again, women are property. Okay. So, so culturally, when you, and that's why marriage transactions are between the father, who is the controlling male of that woman, and the groom. It's transferring the woman from his house to the groom's house with a payment of a dowry. Right. So... Um, my daughters so, don't think that so was transaction. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, transact the transaction is between the families specifically and whoever the heads of those families are. Usually, the father of the bride and the groom, or the father of the groom, uh, potentially depending on ages. Okay. All right. So, to commit adultery in the Ten Commandments is actually you're committing adultery against. The husband, the the husband or father of the woman okay. that you have sex with, rather than against whoever your spouse is, which is why in the in Genesis in the story where um, uh, the brother dies, his leads a life, but she has a child. His brothers are supposed to marry right. her right. so that she will then give birth to a child that will be her dead husband's child when they won't 
It's now the father's responsibility, but he won't either. So she dresses up as a prostitute, seduces him on this roadside. Right. And when she shows up and proves that he's the one who impregnated her, rather, you know, because they were going to kill her. Right. It's like, no, this I'm doing the duty. You wouldn't. Right. You know, she's seen as being righteous in that situation. Is because she's continuing the line of her dead husband. Right. It's a very different cultural understanding of the relationship between a man and a woman and and what the relationship of, of children and families and from what we expect. So we read with our very modern understanding of love and romance and marriage into these ancient stories. We need to take a step back and realize we're and interposing our own morality right. and expectations of marriage onto those on that very different cultural situation. Yeah, I I heard and I try well, I think about this, I'm sure I fail miserably, but to look back in history through the prism of today, you know, like okay, here's 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 the mores and the morals and the customs of today and then I look mm. in back and I judge them based on I've heard that that is uh, it's not a good thing to do it's not a way to understand that okay so I have one last question and I may ask it to to you both I'm kind of curious what you both think about this and Jeff especially because you seem to be looking at sort of a historical kind of literal way that you interpret the reading of the Bible so okay so in the New Testament they're told you know love your neighbors yourself right to to you know and then we hear the the story of the prodigal son or not the prodigal son but the uh, uh the good samaritan mm -hmm. and so but then in the old testament god commands the israelites to go into cana and just wipe them all out just mm -hmm. just brutally just kill every one of them how, how do you how do you square that up how do you how do you say okay that was the same god you know, the same God who said, go into Canaan land and kill them all. And then the God of the New Testament who says, love your neighbors yourself. Don't do any harm to anybody. Any thoughts on that? Okay. One, just point of clarification, the statement, love your neighbors yourself. Right. It's a quote from the Old Testament. Okay. It's from Leviticus. Okay. Um, Jesus was quoting scripture there. When he asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, there's two. Right. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Right. And love your neighbor as yourself. Both of those are quotes from the Torah. Right. So um, that being said, and this kind of speaks to my understanding of the Bible as a book. Right. Rather than, I don't view the Bible as the kind of inerrant word of God. The joke I would say, and actually in like Bible classes, the churches, I'd pick up a Bible and go, the Bible didn't come to us like this. And then just drop it on the table. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. it is the experience of communities over centuries with with god telling their stories the bible is primarily story yeah not law there is law there's poet but most of it's poetry story prose you know parables analogies um so um so it didn't come to us wholesale it is piecemealed together over time by written by various people. And at the end, they kind of got together and said, okay, what are the books that most people find value in? Yeah. And those are the ones that got collected. It's not the, the 
people, a lot of people look at the idea of the canon, right? And view it as very exclusionary. Right. Oh, we're going to kick books out. Well, the reality is, is most books that got rejected is because they're being used by very few people compared to, like, Gospel of Thomas, yeah. right? This is the famous one. Because right. this was kind of found and, and translated. People were just gushing over it. Reality is very few communities were seriously using it. Whereas everyone read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay. And so that's why they got in and Thomas didn't. Because everyone kind of accepted, yeah, these are, these should be on the list, right? Um, the Bible is reflections of story and experiences of, of people of faith over a long period of time coming from very different perspectives. So the love your neighbor as yourself may come from a community that um, is in a position of stability, right? Yeah. Versus, say, another text like Psalm 137, which says, take the Babylonian babies and dash them against the rocks. Yeah. Well, that's because Babylon just destroyed their home. Right. And they've been sent into exile. They are the oppressed. <laughs> Right. And so that experience, that experience of rage and desolation, you know, is coming from a place of weakness and uh, and pain, you know, a hu very human experience. Right. So to just say, well, the Bible, you know, and so it's hard to sometimes as a person of faith who wants to do good, who wants to be kind, who wants to be loving, to look at those stories where God says, wipe them out. Right. Well, one, that was very common in the ancient world. That was common experience. Um, but that being said, it, we don't fully, don't always know the circumstances of, that the people putting those, telling those stories and then shaping their final form, where they're coming from. So, John Luke, right. do you think the God in the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, do you think they're... Do you think they uh, harmonize with each other and that they're the same God? Or what are your thoughts? Well, again, since I don't believe it's the, I believe they're stories and parables and metaphors like Jeff does. I don't believe it's necessarily, I don't believe it's the inerrant literal word of God. So I believe the, the stories can mesh just fine because they are just that, stories. Yeah, and I will then building on that. Uh, yeah, they're stories, but they're stories that people of faith have found useful over a tested period of time. They're, they didn't come. They didn't. They didn't come out of ether. They stood the steps of time, but people have found value in those stories, in their places of pain, in their places of of uh, oppression, in their places of darkness, uh, in their places of celebration and joy. These texts have spoken to them, and they stood. They and they remained with those communities until finally they sat down and decided on a list. And the one that most people accepted is, yeah, these, this should be in. You know, kind of like if you're going to put together a list of the greatest hundred albums, and you have a committee, right? You know, right. not everything that maybe should be in there would get on. Right. It's going to be the ones that most people on the committee would say, yeah, no, that deserves to be on the top one hundred. Right. Right. You know, and the ones that get excluded are the ones that might have their fans, but ultimately, yeah, no, that doesn't belong on the top 100, you know. 
kind of, but they stood these books have stood the test of time in those places where they needed to feel God's presence. And these texts are the ones that have spoken to them. What do you say to so it's not just stories there's not just stories, it's stories and the experiences of those who've been reading them and meditating on them over time over history. Well, I have a question. What do you what do you say to people yeah. who insist that it's the inerrant word of God and if you don't believe that then you're going to hell? Uh I will answer to God on that question. That's that's a nice that's a nice response. Because <laughs> I mean, we, we grew, Preston and I grew, if they're right, if if they're right, I'll have to answer for it. You know, I, but I'd rather answer for that because it, it'd be more accepting and loving than to have to answer for having that view and thus declining certain rights to portions of our of our you know country because of because they don't believe what I believe. And they do treat a lifestyle that I think is sinful. I would rather answer for being too accepting of people than than the other than vice versa. I like that. If I'm, I'm wrong on that. I'm adopting I'm wrong, it. As if I'm wrong to, on that. I'm adopting that as of today. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm wrong on it, then I'll have to answer for it. But I've I've thought about this for 43 years, and that's where I've come down <laughs> on. So. I like it. It's a good way, a good resolution. So, okay. So, uh, I've was able, thank you, Jeff, for well, thank you. being with us. John Luke, did you have any other questions that I told him we'd keep him about an hour? So, okay. Um, no, I, I'd be happy yeah. to have you come back, Jeff. Sometimes we can think of a lot more questions. Oh yeah, I've oh, got sure. yeah, lots and lots of questions. Yeah. Now there's a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, you know, uh, history of translation. You know, again, we only touched on it—the formation of canon. Um, you know, uh, how, where, you know, uh, what do we know about how the Bible came to be? Um, there's all kinds of stuff that's interesting, and we can talk about uh, down the road. So, uh, if you ever come across one of those, and you think. I might be able to provide for some perspective. I'd love to come back. Well, sounds great. I, I, I have this dream of having our own online church where it's just, uh, super accepting of other people's beliefs. And uh, yeah, maybe no. you could be the preacher. Uh, what, uh, maybe, a, maybe a casual guest spot. So. <laughs> okay. I'm pretty sure I'm not qualified to be the preacher. I'm, I'm more of a heckler than a preacher, I think. <laughs> well, one I've thing, had a few of those before. One thing I've always known about John Luke is that he he will kind of heckle, but there's always some kind of thought process behind that. Mm-hmm. That if and it's sometimes in in our classes, I kind of want to go, okay, now why did you say that? Because there's something that you're kind of digging at. But we don't always have time to go there. A lot of times we get kind of brushed aside. And But anyway, yeah. So, But there's a lot of thought behind those. And I'm always curious. And I don't think we take enough time to figure out what that is. But anyway, well, it's been I, interesting. Compared to the people in our Sunday school class, I know a lot more about history. And I know a lot more about science. Well, and, well, and so. And so I throw a little bit of that in there. And with a. A little bit of ha ha, you're stupid underneath. 
<laughs> mostly just to be funny. Well, and the other thing too is, and then and and John Lucas taught me this, but he is very well traveled. I mean, he has been, and I I I won't give your whole pedigree on all the places in the world that you've traveled, but I think you would agree because I think you alluded to this before that the more you travel the more it just opens you up to like hey there's other ways to think about life and about religion and spirituality and and that kind of thing and that's one thing I think you bring to our to this podcast and to our class too is just some of those kind of insights of like hey you can't just look at this one way every time there's there's a lot of ways to look at this so anyway the people People around the world are pretty much wired the same. They have the same emotions. They respond to the same things. They respond well to kindness and and uh, respond to anger with anger. And and the, the some of the best people in the world I've met were like in uh, in Egypt and so forth. They're they're great, very very gracious people. And just because they're Muslim does not mean they're not nice, good, sweet people. No, I said, I, I mean, I worked in the Middle Eastern Studies Department for six years, and those are all of them great people. I mean, Arabic, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of Arabic students, people are studying Arabic. Uh, some are Muslim, some are going to be, or, you know, are working into being translators, but, or, you know, interpreters. But, um, but yeah, no. And the best thing is when they drink baklava and drop it in the break. <laughs> Oh, man, the food. Uh, the food in Egypt final, was so good. Uh, uh, can I share one final thought? Um, as I kind of uh, looked, at, looked at, you know, listened a little bit to the previous episodes and preparation coming on, and um, as, as I talked with Apostle Duke uh, before, and, um, the idea of having space for, to have doubts, it made me think of a quote from St. Augustine. Uh, or St. Augustine, as he's generally more known here in America. Um, and, and I'm going to paraphrase a bit because I don't remember the exact phrasing, but in one, I don't speak Latin, so I, I'd get the exact phrasing wrong anyway. Uh, but it's something along the lines of, God is not something you know or understand. If you understand, you have failed. Hmm. And so the idea of having a space for doubts, I think is a, at the heart of the matter of faith. Right. If you don't have doubt, do you really have faith? You know, if you're yeah. not unsure, I, I, to, to me, doubt, having doubt, having questions and being willing to embrace that part of faith, I think is not a weakness. Yeah, I think it's a strength. I love that. And and I, I think John Luke would agree with me. And I, and, and I don't mean to be presumptuous, but I like to think of ourselves, of John Luke and me, both as seekers, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's like we're, we want to know. I mean, we, we have a real curiosity about a lot of this stuff that goes on that we don't know about. And the other thing, too, is like, uh, and this is a whole different deal, but Jesus, his whole ministry was to question the status quo. You know, to say, hey, this is what's popular, but I say something different, you know, and, and here's the established religion, but we have different ideas. And, and that was one of the things he kind of majored on. So, but yeah, I, I love that. I love that idea of, 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 of and, 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 and say, you say that one more time, something about if, you, if you're sure of your belief, then that's not really faith. Is that, 
yeah, if the, if there's no room for doubt, it's okay. a faith. Okay. Well, I, I love that. Um, well, on, contrary to what you were saying, the, being a seeker and having all these questions, I think I okay. pretty well got it figured out. Okay. All right. Well, no, maybe I'm just kidding. Maybe I'm just kidding. No, no, I did no. want to say <laughs> okay. one more thing about you had mentioned St. Augustine. I want to mention St. Nicholas. I was looking him up. He, yeah. To me, what, what I, in reading about him, because uh, I thought we might talk about him more before Christmas, but we didn't get around to it. But he, he apparently is somebody sort of like King Arthur, that he probably existed, but he wasn't that big a deal. But over time, <laughs> he became more and more of a big deal, especially when his bones were moved from the Middle East back to Italy or wherever they yeah. took him. And he and now he's got churches dedicated to him all over the world. And really, he was just kind of a minor bishop or something in uh, Turkey or over there somewhere in Asia Minor. But he's uh, he's he's grown like like a legend. Ooh, could you imagine that being your future, John, John Luke, Apostle John Luke, that Becoming you come back a hundred years from now and there's like two, Apostle two John Luke churches all over. Yeah. It's like, oh man, this guy, yeah, he lived in Oklahoma City. Church of John Luke. Yeah. No, I don't think so. <laughs> well, it's probably about time to sign off because people won't yep. listen to much more than an hour. So yeah. <laughs> this right. this is Grace Mont. This is episode three of season one and we've had Jeff with us and Apostle Duke and I'm Apostle. What the heck is my name? John Luke. John yeah, Luke. Yeah. John Luke. It's alphabetic. I got to remember that. I think, <laughs> think alph- alphabetically. All right. Well, we will see you next time or, or talk to you next time. Thanks for listening in.